The presented content does not provide or constitute medical, financial, or legal advice. The content is for information purposes only. Viewing or listening to the content does not constitute a physician-patient, dentist-patient, fiduciary-client, or attorney-client relationship. Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about why caregivers need training is Dr. Ebony Green. Dr. Green is the president and CEO of Caregiver Support Services, which specializes in supporting family and professional caregivers across the lifespan through direct supportive services. She is the author of three books, At the Heart of the Matter, Caregiving in the New Millennium, and Reflections from the Soul, and currently writes a monthly article that focuses on self-care among caregivers. Dr. Green has extensive experience focused on caregivers' health and wellness with an emphasis on caregiver stress, burnout, and related family conflicts. How are you doing today, Dr. Green? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jason. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation. This is our third time together, so I'm very excited. Um, before we get started, for those that are joining us for the live webinar, if you have any questions, type your questions in. Time permitting, we will do everything in our power to get your questions answered. So, Dr. Green, I'm going to turn it over to you. Why caregivers need training? Thank you. This is a, first of all, thank you for having me here with Knowledgeable Aging. And um, this is one of the topics that I am extremely excited to present, to talk about, um, because I do feel that we really want to um, enhance the lives of those who are our unsung heroes and heroines and our heroines. And um, I feel that caregivers not only need training, but deserve training. And if nothing, if we've learned nothing from the pandemic, that is one key takeaway. So um, I just included what uh, Jason just shared um, here on the slide. And so just a little background. I have been um, on knowledgeable aging a couple of times and talked about important caregiver issues. And one of the things that um, I don't know that I've had a, a great opportunity to talk about is the caregiver training background that I have. Um, my husband and I co-founded Caregiver Support Services in the late 90s. And then in the early 2000s, we were able to um, provide in-person training to family and frontline caregivers in the form of the nursing assistant and medication aid training. These are generally foundational trainings that um, families and frontline individuals, especially those working in long-term care, nursing homes, assisted living, home care, would, um, would be a prerequisite for them to, to become a professional caregiver, but we also found that there was a shift and family members were taking the, the trainings too so that they could care for a loved one and have a general um, understanding of the care that they're providing. So the idea is that with caregiver support services, our core mission, and it has evolved over time, is to help individuals become great caregivers for the people and patients around them. So when we think about caregiving, we're not only talking about family caregivers, but we're also talking about frontline caregivers. Of course, there are fewer professional caregivers, but there are also um, 53 million or one in five individuals who are caring for their loved ones in the United States. And so the global numbers are astronomical. 
Um, I'm making connections all over the world these days as caregiving becomes um, more of a, a an area where we know that it's normal. It's something that a lot of individuals will um, provide caregiver, will provide support for a family member, whether it be a, a child, an adult child, or a parent or spouse. And, um, and that this is not an easy task. Um, so we want to think about the numbers of individuals who are providing care, but we also want to think about, like I said, the, the number um, of 85% of family members. They're not only helping with what we would call independent activities of daily living, like um, meal preparation, uh, medication uh, assistance, those types of things, but we're also talking about activities of daily living where you're maybe helping a loved one with bathing and dressing, um, grooming, and then there may be more complex tasks that some caregivers are assisting a loved one with. And this may include things like assisting your loved one with um, cleaning or changing their colostomy or a feeding tube or injections. And so you can see that the, the care that most individuals are providing is not just um, on the companion level or the independent activities of daily living, um, but are on a more medical and social um, footing. And so we want to make sure that we are providing that good foundation for support. I've, I may have mentioned this before, but about six in 10 caregivers assist uh, a loved one with medical or nursing tasks. So we're talking about over half of caregivers assisting a loved one with, um, like I was mentioning earlier, maybe a, assisting with a feeding tube or an injection. And this may be someone who is not, this is not their um, area of expertise. So they're not someone who's become a nursing assistant or a nurse, that they are, a family member and they've had um, some level of uh, introductory training or training at discharge when their loved one is going home and um, maybe a couple of in-home visits where the nurse can kind of go over what your loved one needs. But this does not mean that they're getting this in-depth knowledge and training. And so the, the stress level or the distress level with providing these complex tasks can be high among caregivers. And we know that burnout is not necessarily associated with the, it's not necessarily associated with the complexity of the care, meaning that in the past, we didn't have the ability to provide really complex medical care at home. Now, all that really separates you from being able to do that is having a caregiver who is trained and able to provide that level of support for you. So, and what I mean by that is um, I was at a conference not so long ago, I mean, before the pandemic, but, um, and, and there were uh, services where you could have of your loved one's room sterilized so it would meet the needs of a loved one who you know needs a really clean hospital-like environment. You can order hospital beds, you can have a feeding tube at home, you can have intermittent IV therapy at home. So it's really when we're thinking about the level of 
um, and complexity of care long-term, this is something that many times families take on either because of need or because, um, well, it would be need, but also because maybe there's no one else in the family that's going to be able to do this. And so we don't want families to become um, burned out because they don't have the training and assistance needed to perform their tasks comfortably and confidently. So one of the exciting things that we did in 2020, um, the long year that never uh, seemed to end, but this was an exciting thing. Um, between 2018 and 2019, we collected data, um, we had a wellness summit and we asked caregivers what were the things that they felt that they needed to be successful? So what tools and supports do caregivers need to be effective? And so we had 170 participants who responded to this question and 77 out of um, 170 said access to training was their top need. And then if you look at the next three items that score the highest, um, self-time for balance, access to mental health, and social support, you'll kind of, if you kind of think about those aspects of care, that really does coincide with, of course, self-care and wellness. So I'm going to talk a teeny bit about that because it does relate to um, the results from this study, but I think that we really want to make sure that we are giving the caregivers what it is that they are needing to confidently and successfully do the job or provide the care for their loved one that is necessary and so that they can do it effectively. So the current training models, and I've had an opportunity uh, over the years to be involved in all of all of the training models that are listed here. I'm gonna talk a little bit about each, but the, the flagship um, training that you will hear about for caregivers is the 76 hour nursing assistant training. And so this is a minimum requirement for most states. Um, in Nebraska, we have a 75 hour training and then everyone um, participates in or is trained on dependent adult abuse, which makes it 76 hours. Um, some states will have a combination of the uh, nursing assistant and the medication aid, but it's not necessarily called that. So if someone is working in a long-term care facility, a nursing home, this is the general requirement, the 76 hours of foundational training. And this is um, both uh, learning about the aging process and um, learning about different disease processes and how to actually assist a loved one or client. And then it also includes time in a clinical setting where you have uh, the opportunity to learn hands-on how to perform certain procedures. And um, that would be assisting with personal care type procedures. And then you would pass a state um, nursing assistant uh, written test and then a skills test. So this is one of those that if you looked around um, our 50 states, you would see that 
that there's a requirement along this line because it ties with Medicare. So um, long-term care organizations that are participants in the Medicare program must have, the nursing assistants must have the 76-hour training. So that's good because a lot of times these days, the care is much more complex in nursing homes than it was you know, 20 years or so when, when I started my career. The 40-hour medication aid is a additional training that individuals will take. And this may be something that is the flagship um, type program, either for nursing assistants who are going to assist with um, administering medications or passing medications in a long-term care setting, or it may also be the primary training that individuals who are working in assisted living or independent living um, apartments where they may check on the client um, or, or the senior or the elder, um, or they may do some light medication reminders, that type of thing. The big thing to remember about the 40-hour medication aid training is that this is usually under the direction of a registered nurse. So it's not like a license. It's more um, of a certification or a course and licensure um, that is, um, I said licensure, so I kind of contradict myself a, a teeny bit. But what I mean by that is your license is really tied to the person who's doing the observation and monitoring of patients. If someone would have a reaction or something, um, would be under the direction of a nurse. So it's a really good foundational training for those purposes, for um, the, the aforementioned types of organizations that I mentioned. And then home health aid, um, this is an interesting um, aspect if you have, and, and I'm not talking about non-medical home care, I'm talking about a home health agency that may follow you and your loved one when they are discharged from the hospital. And so they're kind of working side by side with the family. And so this is where you would have um, a certain foundation of training. And then you would, um, what I would do for the home care agency that I worked with was go in and I contracted and I went in and um, I would spend the day with a new um, home care aide and go over all of the foundational things that you need to be able to do for home care and then also go to a client's home and then we would under supervision do things like make sure that the individual knew how to do um, a full bath or shower um, you know and assist with briefs things like that so it's really um, competency based and then also there is um, time spent in the office going over specific home care um, aspects and then the um, there's a suggested eight-hour training for non-medical personnel so individuals who would be working um, in more of the companion sphere where they are um, maybe assisting individuals with um, their independent acti activities of daily living so not so much with the um, bathing and dressing and grooming but more of the med reminders so it's already in the pill um, dispenser um, or they're assisting with meals um, taking them out and and it for enjoyment and social activity so there's a broad range of training that is required depending on the setting and that can be confusing not only for 
the um, caregivers, the professional caregivers, but it can also be confusing for family members because you're not always aware of what type of qualification an individual is coming to you with when they are um, going to be assisting you, or if you are an elder yourself who is in need of assistance, then what is the um, minimum standards that an individual um, would have with regard to their skills. So it's always kind of important and interesting to find out a bit about um, the training suggestions. And then all of these, there's generally um, continuing education. And there's also usually, if there's a new skill, something that someone has not performed, then a registered nurse usually would go in while they um, and demonstrate and have that person return demonstrate how to do that procedure so that again you're getting in there with adequate skills. So even with the types of training that I just described, when we sat down with caregivers at our caregiver wellness um, honor and asking for help event summit, these were the things that caregivers said about improving access to training. So they're already having some type of training, but they're still feeling as though these are areas where they could have um, increased access. And this includes um, training with a focus on people skills and crisis management should be included in the preliminary training. I think this is really important um, because when you have a distressing situation that's occurring with your the person that you're caring for one of the things that um, usually kind of backs you up and I can say this as a nurse is that the training kicks in and so when I'm in a crisis situation a lot of times my response is going to be to address the situation as calmly as possible and then once everything is stabilized and situated that is generally when I flip out. <laughs> so um, that's good for a person who needs to be able to keep everyone in the room calm so that your loved one or client gets the care and support that they need until they're stable. And then, um, and then once everybody else is calm, then you can go and have a quiet moment to yourself. And that's usually what a lot of us do. So I think the better training that we have for the caregivers that we work with, um, the more that that's going to be, uh, it's going to contribute to good coping skills. And that's what we need. Um, it also says some caregivers would benefit from formal training in safely ex executing the stressful activities such as assisting their care partner with dressing and helping with transfers, and then if someone has a fall. So I think these are things that could be reiterated. They're, they're generally covered in most trainings, but in most of the training models that I just mentioned, but not always. And so it's something that we could continue to refresh um, caregivers about. I think that we are doing a good job of at least with awareness with Alzheimer's disease, but educational courses should be given on these practices as well as on how to communicate with individuals with Alzheimer's because 
there's a whole different level of um, challenge when it comes to caring for someone who has dementia because they don't always remember who you are. Um, you may have some folks who are um, really reluctant for bathing, um, who are more combative, and a lot of times that breaks down to their fear. And so being able to understand that it's not personal, that it's more or less related to the disease process is very important. And so if individuals are caring for, for a loved one or client with Alzheimer's, I don't think you could give enough training because there's always some new challenge um, and uh, new situation that you're addressing. And then the caregivers say that there should be a minimum of two years of care training and that this should be closely tied to pay increases and the experience. Because we do know a lot of times caregivers are not paid at a rate that is a livable wage for some. And for family caregivers who may be providing care 20, 30 hours a week, um, they may not be getting any compensation at all and then also be working a full-time job. So we've got to always think about those aspects of things. The other things caregivers say is teaching patience and kindness, and that this should be a cornerstone with the emphasis on mutual respect among staff and being able to treat one another fairly. Because we are working with people, we do need to have a sense of community with the folks that we work with, and we should have a community, uh, a, a sense of community with the people that we care for and about. And then each caregiver should be assigned to a mentor who can guide and provide support to prevent stress. A lot of times we just need someone to bounce ideas off of to support when maybe we have a client that has a um, is combative and we need to get to the bottom of it because there's always a reason people are not generally um, in a um, combative mode because they want to be there's an unmet need there. And so I think at the heart of teaching patients and kindness is really understanding that caregivers deserve training because the more that you understand disease processes and the challenges of your clients, then the more patience you can have because you understand it's not about you, it's about meeting an unmet need. And then caregiver mentors should be certified and educated on resources and crisis management. Because again, like I said, most of us are really good at maintaining a level of calm during the distressing situation, but it is definitely um, after that where we kind of need a debriefing situation to occur. So I'm really excited about where we are at Caregiver Support Services because as I mentioned, we did provide in-person training for about 13 years. And some of the things that I'm gonna talk about in these next couple of slides, I know we're getting to our close to our um, time together, but is that caregivers who are trained feel more confident, better supported, and they're less likely to leave their jobs. We know that caregivers need to um, maintain that relationship or it's best that we don't have to switch uh, the caregiver for the, the individual who is receiving care because that's disrupting to lives too. A confident caregiver can make the client feel better compared to caregivers who are unsure about their tasks and role. 
So one of the things that we've done is we've started with three trainings that are now available online, and these are um, elder abuse prevention. And one of the reasons that we decided to start with the three that I'm going to talk about, and I'll, I'll tell you about each reason, but of course, elder abuse prevention, we are um, often going into individuals' homes or working in assisted living facilities or long-term care facilities, and we need to know how to detect and report abuse and feel comfortable about it. This is one of the things that can be very distressing. And when you're not able to, as a caregiver, um, resolve a situation where you feel like abuse is occurring, it can be very, very distressing. So we feel like this is a foundational um, topic and that any anybody who is caring for a loved one or a client should have not a working knowledge of elder abuse prevention, how to detect it, how to document it, who to call, how to take care of yourself in those types of situations. The other training that we have is normal aging. And I'm surprised often, um, I love the fact that, that's what I love about knowledgeable aging is that you're getting information from a variety of um, experts in the community. And because a lot of people have no idea what constitutes normal aging and what is a disease process. And it's very surprising often in, in practice when I was providing training in person that individuals would be very, very surprised that certain things were not a part of normal aging or that certain things were a part of normal aging. So I think that one of the things we want to always start with in any um, training, any of the trainings that I mentioned is telling, letting people know, educating individuals on what is normal and what is something that you should report. And then this is always the most enlightening topic. And it's very poignant since we've been talking about um, challenges with um, uh, the coronavirus and, and I'm so happy to be vaccinated um, finally. But it's always interesting to compare and contrast when I would do um, my second day in the nursing assistant training, I would spend the entire day talking about bacteria and viruses and all of how we should, what we should do for protection and we do gloving and hand washing. And I was always surprised at the number of people who didn't um, have a good idea about proper hand washing procedures. And, and even the frustration level that maybe they'd been providing care for someone and they didn't understand um, how they might bring things in to the client or to their family members on their hands because they're not doing a, a good job or not aware of um, bacteria and viruses. And the final thing that caregivers talked about was making sure that we implement tools uh, and provide resources that enhance caregiver wellness. And you know that this is, if you've listened to any of our chats here on knowledgeable, knowledgeable aging, you know that um, caregiver wellness is one of those things that is vitally important, that we want to make sure that caregivers have access to the tools that they need to um, care for themselves. And so the well-being of caregivers, I, this is actually comments from caregivers. The well-being of caregivers can be overlooked and underestimated because it requires some level of physical effort. 
Um, and then caregivers should be aware of the type of care they are expected to provide and should have access to proper resources and information so that they can be successful. And then the final thing is caregivers should also know how to care for themselves and their patients with a stress-free mind that allows them to emphasize the tasks at hand. Both patient and caregiver health are equally important. If we want to have long-term caregivers, they have to be healthy and have the ability to practice self-care. So um, we have a variety of um, also free videos that you can access on caregiver support services. If you go to our training tab, you'll see educational videos for caregivers. And these are just really good, um, quick five minute snippets about different things that you might want to learn or know, um, whether it's how to manage meds or um, how to approach a loved one with dementia. One of my favorite people in the world, um, I don't know that she knows this, is Tifa Snow, who does a positive care approach to care. And she um, talks about dementia, and she has a free set of videos on her website, the PAC videos about dementia that you can access too. And then the American Heart Association also has um, a variety of um, first aid and CPR courses that may be helpful for caregivers who are experiencing, who maybe um, have clients who uh, need CPR or first aid. You were talking about elder abuse, and as you know, we've had a couple of, of experts talking about elder abuse, and there's a saying that they, that that's resonated in my mind ever since they told me, it's the say, see something, say something when it comes to elder abuse. And can you talk a little about that from the caregiver perspective? Yes, because I do think that there is a fear sometimes of saying something. And the big thing is caregivers, if you see something, definitely say something. And that you don't have to be the person that's making the determination as to whether or not the situation is an abusive situation or not. So I think sometimes the pressure is that we want to um, you know, make the, do the investigation part, or are we going to have to? If you think that someone is being abused, it's not always going to be founded because it could be something that, um, it, you know, that looks abusive, but isn't necessarily, that person is still um, not a dependent adult. Don't worry about that part of it. Just if you do notice something is going on with your loved one or client to report it to your um, Department of Health and Human Services, and there's a special abuse and neglect hotline in each state. I'd like to shift to family caregivers. How can you encourage, or what can you say to encourage family caregivers, Dr. Green, to kind of learn a little bit more about the caregiving that they may be involved with when it comes to family as opposed to being reactive. I think you would agree that in society we're a little bit too reactive as opposed to being proactive. Is there anything you can kind of encourage them to kind of get educated as opposed to just all of a sudden, you know, being thrust upon this role of, of helping a family member and, and not really understanding what the value that they have? Well, I think that there is more of an awareness in general about caregiving in general. And I, I remember having a conversation about someone saying, well, what's the difference? Well, we between now and years ago when families, this was just a normal part of, of our family life. I think that everyone, is, most people are so busy and they've got so much going on that we don't necessarily prepare in advance 
and so um, for, for caregiving. So I think if you can find anything that talks about normal aging process, if you have a, a, a loved one who is aging, um, and then also to have that open communication with your family member, even though they don't need assistance right now, um, about what would they want. And then, because those are usually the two biggest things, what is, what's normal, and then am I meeting what my loved one, am I doing this in a way that my loved one would want it? Um, because that can cause a lot of regret and distress, not knowing um, that you're doing it the way that they prefer. So those would be my two biggest recommendations. And I think as people age and hear more about caregiving, there is at least an interest in understanding the normal aging process and accessing programs like the the um, knowledgeable aging. And there's a growing awareness um, about how to do this for ourselves and then how we can apply what we learn to our loved ones. Excellent. Well, Dr. Green, how can people find you? We are um, at caregiversupportservices.org or .com. And my um, personal email address is egreen at caregiversupportservices.org. And so you can also contact us on our website. There's contact us on every page. And so we'd love to hear from you. If you have questions, ideas, there's a resource that you need. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I will I will double this. Uh, that website is phenomenal. There's so much good information. So definitely people, if you have the opportunity, get to Dr. Green's website. Um, you won't be sorry. Uh, as far as knowledgeable aging, you can go to our website, knowledgeableaging.com. You can see all of our upcoming and archive webinars. Uh, if you want to go on YouTube, type in knowledgeable aging. We encourage you to subscribe. We update that four to five times per week. If podcasts are your thing, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Tunes, etc. Till next time, I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging. Thank <music> you.